0: Hello and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Well, I'm back after a brief hiatus. I do apologise for all the gaps in episodes this year. Next season, all things going well, I will be releasing two stories per episode, one episode per fortnight, which will keep pace with the radio version and be much more manageable for me. For now, kick back and enjoy the last three tales from season one. Many of us have a particular era that we are somewhat fascinated by. Some love the 1950s or 1960s, some the 19th century. Others like to dress up in medieval costumes and reenact famous battles. Personally, I think an extraordinary time to have lived would have been in the time of my own grandparents. All four of them were born in the 1890s. And the last surviving two, dad's dad and mum's mum, lived through until 1982, when they were 87 years old. Imagine being born into a time when people still used candles and horse-drawn vehicles, and dying in the 1980s. They'd have witnessed the advent of the motor car, electricity, powered flight, radio, television, the atomic age, the moon landing. And though it probably wasn't their thing, they'd have even witnessed the advent of the personal computer. Certainly there were tough times too, living through two world wars and the Great Depression, but nonetheless it must have been a dynamic and fascinating time to have lived. And imagine looking back over the years at all the extraordinary changes. But our tale today is about a gentleman who not only witnessed most of the aforementioned changes, but lived long enough to witness two significant events that would profoundly impact his status as a free citizen of his homeland. Sylvester McGee claimed to have been born on the 29th of May, 1841. There are no records to confirm this, but for reasons we will get to, it's generally accepted he would have been born very near to this time. McGee was born in North Carolina in the US into slavery, hence no birth certificate, and was the son of slaves Ephraim and Jeanette, who were working on the JJ Shanks plantation, which is where he grew up. But he was purchased by another plantation owner one Hugh McGee. Sylvester adopted the McGee surname as it was customary for slaves to do at the time. During this period the American Civil War broke out and Sylvester McGee was taken into combat by his new owner who was a Confederate officer but was sold again the following year. Shortly after this he ran away and joined the Union Army. He participated in battles at Vicksburg and Champion Hill and was wounded at both, and as I'm sure we all know, became a free man at the end of the conflict. Well, comparatively, at least. In order to appease the vanquished, the US decided on legally mandated segregation. Schools, residential areas, theatres, and other public spaces were separated into white and black areas. Blacks were also generally paid less. Sylvester wouldn't be living under these circumstances forever, though. One day, he would be truly considered an equal by the laws of his country. And that day would begin to manifest 100 years later, when Rosa Parks refused to give up her bus seat to a white person when she was directed to by the bus driver and started the American Civil Rights Movement. And yes, you did hear me correctly. At 114 years of age, Sylvester McGee, having fought in the American Civil War, had lived long enough to see the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement. In fact, he lived long enough to see the Civil Rights Act of 1964 become law some nine years after that event. On his 124th birthday, he had a day named in honour of him by the Governor and was even sent a birthday card by then-President Lyndon Baines Johnson. He had become somewhat of a minor celebrity in his twilight years with an article written about him in Time magazine and even making a television appearance. But can we say without evidence such as a birth certificate that he was really that old? McGee's own accounts of his military service, including the aforementioned Battle of Champion Hill, contained enough minute details to convince historians he was probably present, especially considering he was illiterate and couldn't have just researched it. But most compelling is a bill of sale that has Sylvester and his father listed and dates from 1859. Even if he was out by a few years, and even if his military service was complete fabrication, he still lived an extraordinarily long life. If, on the other hand, he was correct, then when he died of a stroke in 1971, he would have been 130 years old. This would make him not only the last surviving American slave, but possibly the last surviving American Civil War veteran and the oldest person to have ever lived. Frank Hayes loved horses, and why wouldn't he? They are indeed a magnificent animal. Frank dreamed of becoming a jockey one day, but any involvement with horses made him happy, and so he began working as a stable hand and trainer, which would see him move from his native island to the US, New York specifically, where he took a job with a local horse breeder. He cared for them and trained them, he watched them race, he rejoiced when they won, he commiserated when they didn't. His affinity with the animals was beyond question, and by all accounts, he loved his work, But Frank harboured a secret, though he wasn't necessarily built for it, that dream of becoming a jockey was all-consuming, and one of the deepest desires in his heart was to ride a winning horse. But an opportunity was about to present itself to young Frank. In June of 1923, when Frank was just 22 years old, a horse that Frank had been training called Sweet Kiss was to race at Belmont Park, but the owner for one reason or another had been unable to find a jockey. Frank saw his big chance and seized upon it. He said to his boss and horse's owner, one Miss A.M. Frayling, that he himself would ride Sweet Kiss at Belmont Park. Now, my sources for this story suggest Miss A.M. Frailing was initially hesitant, but when no other jockeys became available, she reluctantly agreed. In any case, Frank got the job. But first, he would need to lose some weight. Jockeys, as you know, are usually short in stature and very lightweight, so as not to encumber the horse. Sir Frank embarked on a very intense exercise and weight loss regime, even going so far as to become dehydrated, not merely from the exercise, but because he was avoiding drinking water, as water added weight. He exercised, starved and dehydrated himself into the ground during the short time he had before the race, but on the 4th of June 1923 his dreams came true when he sat on Sweet Kiss behind the barrier, dressed in silks, eagerly awaiting the race to begin. And then they were off. It wasn't long before Sweet Kiss made her way up to the lead, impressive considering it was her maiden race and she was a 20 to 1 outsider. Hayes' riding didn't seem to be helping either. Despite his desire to make a name for himself as a jockey, he wasn't showing much form, lazily lolling about in a manner that seemed to encumber Sweet Kiss, not assist her. But Sweet Kiss thundered on regardless and crossed the line in first position. A delighted Miss Frayling approached to congratulate Hayes, but as she did, Hayes fell from the saddle, face down, and lay still on the ground at her feet. A doctor was called, but it was no use. Frank Hayes was dead. It was determined that he had suffered a massive heart attack during the race, partly brought on from the excitement of living his dream, partly from the punishment he put his body through with the gruelling weight loss and exercise regime. It was clear that Sweet Kiss had won the race, but there was some consternation about whether or not Frank did. Technically, Sweet Kiss finished without a jockey, but it was decided out of respect to Frank to give him the victory. The punters who backed Sweet Kiss at 20 to 1 were no doubt happy with that decision. Frank Hayes was allegedly buried in his racing silks, and Sweet Kiss? Well, apparently, she was given the nickname The Sweet Kiss of Death, and never raced again. Frank Hayes, the only person known to be in the rather extraordinary position of having posthumously won a steeplechase while the race was still being run, The concept of the detective emerged out of the early 19th century, and by the latter half of that century, there was a slew of fictional detectives and their clever crime-solving abilities, filling the pages of books and periodicals, Edgar Allan Poe's Dupa and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes chiefly among them. The tradition carries on today. Every generation has had its detective heroes, from Miss Marple to Philip Marlowe, to Jim Rockford to whatever is popular today, but there has been a consistent fascination with detective stories from the Victorian era. Sherlock Holmes's character is revived every few years in movies and TV series, and the portrayals vary wildly from the original character and each other. It seems the thing people consistently enjoy is the brilliance of the detective. Set in an era with almost nothing in the way of forensics and with technology such as CCTV in a far-off and unimaginable future, the Victorian-era detective, fictional or otherwise, had to rely almost exclusively on the old grey matter to solve whatever conundrum he was faced with. One such detective was Robert LeDrew. He wasn't from the pages of a periodical, he was a real live detective working in Paris in the 1880s. He was one of france's best detectives and so in 1887 when sailors had begun to go missing in the port city of Havre, in normandy le drew was sent to assist it was after sunset when le drew arrived in the town and so he turned in for the night and reported for duty the following morning only to find that the missing sailors had been bumped down the priority list by a murder André Monet, a prominent businessman, had been shot to death on the beach the night before. Monet still had his valuables on his person, and so robbery had been ruled out as a motive, and there were no other obvious motives, and so Le travelled with some gendarmes to the scene of the crime. In the sand on the beach leading up to the crime scene, and then leading away again, were footprints, and upon studying the footprints... LeDrew began to feel certain he had already solved the crime. He requested that plaster casts be made of the footprints, and once they had set, he sat for quite some time studying them, right there on the beach, looking troubled and intense, and remarking that the footprints looked familiar. Finally, he told the gendarmes that he believed he had solved the case and no further investigation was necessary. The story varies at this point depending on the source material. Some say he returned to his hotel room and spent a troubled night alone. Others say he went immediately to the police station. Either way, at some point, he had checked his revolver and found one of the chambers had a spent cartridge. Robert LeDrew had woken up that morning to a mystery long before he had left his rooms. His shoes and socks were wet and covered in sand, and upon his arrival at the murder scene, LeDrew immediately noticed the footprints had a missing big toe. LeDrew was missing a big toe. All this and a spent bullet from his own revolver, and LeDrew had solved the case. The murderer was Robert LeDrew. Le Drew, it seems, suffered somnambulism or sleepwalking, and though he had no recollection of committing the murder, inductive reasoning told him that, given the circumstances, he was most likely the culprit. At first, his peers thought the idea preposterous, but when a test was conducted and Le Drew fired blanks from a gun at officers while still apparently asleep, they accepted his conclusion. Le sleepwalking would be used as his trial defence and he would escape the guillotine. Instead, he was banished to a farmlet outside Paris, where he was kept under guard to ensure he didn't hurt anyone or himself while asleep. And that is where he spent the rest of his days. Le passed away in 1937. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care, catch ya.